0: Well, as we enter Lent this week, we're gonna be talking a bit about the kingdom of God. And I've always loved this idea. The kingdom of God, to me, is so central to what Jesus' message is about. And in fact, if you open up a Bible, you will see that Jesus comes very early on proclaiming that the kingdom of God has come near. And in fact, in Mark, these are the first words out of Jesus' mouth. He says, it's time to repent. The kingdom has drawn near. It's what his ministry is all about. But what is the kingdom? What does Jesus mean when he says the kingdom? A lot of Jesus' ministry is actually set against another kingdom, another kingdom from his time. So when Jesus talks about the kingdom of God, on one hand, he is setting it against another kingdom, the kingdom of Rome. Rome. In fact, when the Bible refers to Jesus as Lord or the son of God, those were actually titles that were very often reserved for Caesar. In fact, we have lots of documents from this time period where the various Caesars, the rulers of Rome are called son of God, where they are called Lord. Caesar was the head of the other kingdom and Jesus was meant to be the head of the kingdom of God. And so in proclaiming the kingdom of God, Jesus was also saying something like the kingdom of Rome, that other kingdom, that's not legit. That's not the kingdom you should be focusing on. It was almost like Jesus was saying another world is possible. Only he's not saying just possible. He's saying it's actually here. Repent, the kingdom of God has drawn near. Turn back, the kingdom of God has drawn near. So what we get from the Gospels is that the kingdom of God is not like other kingdoms. It's not like Rome. It doesn't work the same way. It's different. But what is this kingdom like? Well, one of the main ways that Jesus talks about the kingdom and the way that we're going to explore during this period of Lent is through the use of parables. The kingdom of God is like, we hear Jesus say over and over again. But a parable uh, often brings up more questions than answers. And as we'll see, they often have meanings that are hard to nail down. They, in that way, they're kind of challenging our desire to control things. Wouldn't it be great if you could get like a 100% accurate image of the kingdom of God? But that's not really what Jesus gives us. And I think there's a lesson in that. The kingdom of God doesn't belong to us. We don't set the rules, God does. And so Jesus communicates through parables. Luckily for us, God isn't a tyrant. Today, what we're going to learn is that God's kingdom is actually almost the complete opposite of a tyrannical kingdom. It is so forgiving, so merciful, so grace filled that even when we think we're going above and beyond in our forgiveness, we're actually still falling short. With that, let's hear our scripture today from Matthew chapter 18. If your brother or sister sins against you, go and point out the fault when the two of you are alone. If you are listened to, you have regained that one. But if you are not listened to, take one or two others along with you so that every word may be confirmed by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If that person refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if the offender refuses to listen even to the church, Let such a one be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly, I tell you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Again, truly, I tell you, if two of you agree on earth about anything you ask, it will be done for you by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, I am among them. Then... Peter came to him and said, Lord, if my brother or sister sins against me, how often should I forgive? As many as seven times? And Jesus said to him, not seven times, but I tell you, 77 times. For this reason, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his slaves. When he began the reckoning, one who owed him 10,000 talents was brought to him. And as he could not pay, the Lord ordered him to be sold together with his wife and children and all possessions in payment to be made. So the slave fell on his knees before him saying, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the Lord of that slave released him and forgave the debt. But that same slave went out, came upon one of his fellow slaves who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him by the throat said, pay what you owe. Then his fellow slave fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me, and I will pay you. But he refused. Then he went and threw him him into prison until he would pay the debt. When his fellow slaves saw what had happened, they were greatly distressed. And they went and reported to their Lord all that had taken place. Then his Lord summoned him and said to him, you wicked slave, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. Should you not have had mercy on your fellow slave as I had mercy on you? And in his anger, his Lord handed him over to be tortured until he would pay his entire debt. So my heavenly father will also do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother or sister from your heart. May God bless this reading. When explaining parables, the biblical scholar, Amy Jill Levine, stresses that these short stories aren't meant to be easily understood. In fact, she writes that uh, if you get to the end of a parable, and you understand the meaning exactly, you probably haven't read it very carefully, you should go back and start again. And so with that in mind, let's try to understand this parable. You know, it is difficult, this whole parable about forgiveness feels so important because it is difficult to imagine any community not needing some process for forgiveness. There has never been a grouping of people in which there wasn't some disagreement. I mean, besides First Christian Church Lafayette, of course. No disagreement ever over anything Well, Jesus begins this passage by talking about uh, some guidelines for how to deal with inevitable conflict. That there are these processes where you should take one person and then two people, and you can see how this would work out. And Peter, Peter, the faithful disciple who just tries his best, what he hears is that they should, as often as possible, offer one another grace, giving multiple opportunities for reconciliation. And then Peter, trying his very, very best, takes a stab at what he thinks is a really, really generous practice of grace. What if I offer seven times forgiveness? That's so much more than you ought to have to offer. But I know the Lord is merciful, so it must be that high. And then Jesus corrects him, not seven times, but 77 times. You know, a commentary I read mentioned that there's some discrepancy in these numbers. It's not clear in the Greek if it means 70 times seven or if it means 70 plus seven. There's just some language problems there. But the commentary very quickly mentions it doesn't really matter. Because the point Jesus is trying to make is there isn't a number Or the number is so ridiculously high that you really just shouldn't think about it. You should just default to forgiveness. To explain this, Jesus launches into this parable. This parable about a landowner who forgives a servant's debt. The servant, who is very relieved, then goes and does something unfortunate He has his debts relieved, but he goes to someone who owes him something and demands payment. And the parable ends with the original master being pretty angry about his servant mistreating someone else because of their debts. He remarks, didn't I forgive your debts and you turn around and demand that somebody else pay you theirs? So what is the kingdom of God like? What we get is that the behavior of the kingdom is shaped by the person in charge. It is, in fact, our relationship with our Lord that is supposed to shape our relationship with others. And in this case, our God is full of mercy and forgiveness. We all know this as Christians, we have experienced great mercy. We have experienced great forgiveness. Our God, our Lord, our savior could hold our lives against us, could hold our mistakes against us, could hold our missteps against us, but doesn't. And in a kingdom determined by this kind of radical forgiveness, who then are we to hold anything against our neighbors? Now, this doesn't quite mean that everything goes. In the parable, the man who both experienced forgiveness and exercised retribution on his debtor is reprimanded for his behavior. It's not really an everything goes. There's still a process for reconciliation and making things right, right? But what we do learn is that the kingdom does flip everything on its head. Does flip everything upside down. Because what is the goal of seeking reconciliation with another? What we get from this image of the kingdom is that the lesson about what to do if someone sins against you is to seek reconciliation. It is to restore the relationship. It's almost like what Jesus is asking is, what would happen, what would need to happen in this relationship for you to be in community again? If someone has done something wrong, the question is not just drop it and pretend like it didn't happen. The question is, what would need to happen for you to be in relationship with this person again? If someone wrongs you, they damage the relationship, and Jesus wants to fix that. And this is part of Jesus' parable that really contrasts with the kingdoms of the world. Because when we think about justice in an earthly sense, we use the term retribution. As in, somebody has done something they shouldn't, and therefore they have earned a punishment. But the kingdom of God isn't like that. The kingdom of God doesn't function where you do something wrong and you must be punished. Punishment isn't the focus. The focus is on the relationship. It's on making things right between community members. There are all sorts of examples of this in our world but it was hard not to read this passage and, and think back one more time to my trip to Ireland last October, and to Northern Ireland. When we were at the Corrymeela community, we learned about mercy. And my group was actually assigned this word. We had to, five of us had to sit down and come up with a definition of mercy. Now, try that. It's a little bit tricky. It sounds like a very straightforward term. And then it's, it's just a little bit slippery. It makes a lot more sense when what you're, what you're trying to forgive, what, what you're trying to let go of is small, right? If someone takes something from you, you can say, well, they needed it more than I did and let it go. But what if it's something bigger? What if the thing somebody, somebody took from you is much larger and harder to let go of? So while we were in Northern Ireland, we were introduced to a documentary that was called Guardians of the Flame, and we got to spend uh, a couple of hours with the director. and the, The film tells the story of several people who were impacted by the troubles, the violent conflict between Protestants and Catholics. One of those people was Alan McBride, whose wife was murdered by the Irish Republican Army, the IRA. Which was the primary paramilitary group of the Catholics. So, how do you forgive? And Alan, through a series of events, was able to. After years of processing the anger and hurt, Alan became an outspoken proponent of reconciliation. In part of the documentary, he tells about I suppose the a story the big of a moment, moment of came for me healing. In
1: Evanston, uh, in so Edinburgh, let's to all places, there were two ex prisoners out. I suppose the, the big breakthrough moment came for me in, uh, in Edinburgh, of all places. There were two ex-prisoners there, one a Republican and one a Loyalist, and then there were a couple of other people as well. But I ended up sitting beside this Loyalist ex-prisoner on the way out, and we struck up a conversation and we touched down in Edinburgh. He said to me, you know, look, I've enjoyed talking to you. Do you want to go into Edinburgh and we'll, we'll, we'll have a beer and continue the conversation? But there was another guy on the plane that day who was from the IRA, a Republican, uh, part of the organisation that murdered my wife. And uh, I knew right away that if we were going to go out and have this drink, that it couldn't just be me and this loyalist guy. That we would have to invite the Republican to come with us because if we didn't, it would always be like I was taking sides, and I was saying, "Well, it's okay, you're one of us, so you can, you can carry out these kind of atrocities, but you can't because you're not, you know, that that sort of thinking." Uh, as we were talking about this, the guy came over and introduced himself, and all three of us went into Edinburgh that evening. And I can remember sharing the story, and the. Uh, Republican guy at the end of it just looked me in the face and actually took my hand and he said to me, you know, Alan, what happened that day in the was wrong? And I, as an Irish Republican, I'm sorry.
0: Did everybody get that? I'll give you the quick story. I realized I didn't even think that like, oh, an Irish accent and an echoey sanctuary might not be the best uh, path of action. He ended up in a the story t- he told. If you heard it, was he ends up in a pub with two ex-prisoners. One was uh, Catholic, and one was a Protestant. These would have been folks who had committed atrocities during the Troubles. Maybe they were even murderers. And as part of the reconciliation process in the Troubles, the prisoners from each side were released, regardless of their crimes. And so one day, this man, Alan McBride, ended up in a pub with a Protestant and a Catholic ex-prisoners, and he told his story. And he says at the end of his story about his wife having been murdered, at the end of the story, the Irish Catholic takes his hands and said, as an Irish Republican, I want to let you know that I'm sorry for what happened to your wife. It was wrong and it shouldn't have happened. And that moment of healing, that moment of forgiveness It led Alan to a deeper process of reconciliation. It was a moment in which he had to ask, can I show mercy to those who have caused harm to me? Not letting it go, not saying that what happened to his wife wasn't wrong, but saying that for the purposes of this relationship, can I let go of this pain? Much of Alan's life now has been dedicated to seeking healing. He shares and later on in the documentary that uh, he learned more about the Catholic struggle in Northern Ireland. He began to appreciate the views of the Catholics, their sense of having been oppressed by the Protestant majority. So what this conversation didn't do is it didn't bring back his wife. It didn't make everything... Better. It didn't even demand that somebody pay the price for what had happened. But what it did do is make a new relationship possible. A relationship that may not have been able to exist without forgiveness. And as I learned about the peace process in Northern Ireland, it became, it became very apparent that, that one of the prices... That if the price of reconciliation between Protestants and Catholics was that everyone who had committed acts of violence would be punished, that no one would get anywhere. That if you demanded that absolute justice be accomplished before the fighting would stop, that the fighting would never stop. There was this need for mercy, this need to release the need to punish others. And that wasn't easy. It wasn't something that people were excited to do. But it did lay the groundwork for what was needed. It did allow for reconciliation to take root. So the kingdom of God is defined by this kind of forgiveness. It is defined by mercy. Why? Why? Well, because if your goal is to make everyone pay for what they deserve, you're gonna be really disappointed when you realize that you can't actually pay God for what you owe. You can't make up your debt to God. But God has forgiven you. God has forgiven us. This is because what is most important to God is not what you owe. What's most important to God is you. You are the most important. And God wants us to learn the same lesson. What's most important is not that you get what you deserve, nor is it that others pay the price that they've accrued. What's most important is them, the person, There's this old saying that I think we've all heard from Mahatma Gandhi, the Indian uh, prophet. An eye for an eye makes the whole world blind. And I think that's exactly what Jesus is saying. In the kingdoms of this world, in Rome, people get what's coming to them. An eye for an eye. But in the kingdom of God, there is a different rule. Forgiveness not because everyone ought to be able to get away with whatever they want, but because what's most important is forgiveness. What's most important is our relationship to one another. So how many times will you be asked to forgive? How many times will we be asked to practice mercy?